From Square Two, this is What's Wrong With Revenue. I'm Mike Lieberman, CEO at Square Two, and along with my longtime friend, Eric Kalis, and co-founder at Square Two and six-time entrepreneur, Eric and I will answer the question CEOs have every single day, what's wrong with revenue? You can be part of the Livecast show where we'll answer your questions every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Eastern, or catch the show on demand on YouTube and on all your favorite podcast networks. Also check out all our audio and video content on Square2 Plus at the square2marketing.com website. Enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to What's Wrong with Revenue. I'm Mike Lieberman. This is Eric Kalis. Eric, say hi. Hello. Uh, super excited to be with you guys today where we're going to talk about how your company has to take a position and how your brand has to really, really lean into thought leadership. So it's a pretty big topic. It's one that is uh, near and dear to me because it's a big driver of results. And I'll get into that in a little bit. Just to remind everybody, Check out the show on YouTube. You can subscribe to the show. You can like it. You can comment. Uh, Square2marketing.com channel on YouTube. Check out the show on Square2 Plus now, our streaming service, www.square2marketing.com backslash square to the number two plus. All the shows are there. You can subscribe to Square2 Plus and get notified every time we have new content on Square2 Plus. And if you go to the What's Wrong With Revenue page on the Square2 site at the bottom in the footer, you can submit questions. We handle questions on the show. We have a decent amount of questions today. Super excited to get started. And here we go. So we see this time and time again with, with different brands. They have an uh, incredible interest to drive results. But when it comes to positioning and the story they're telling, they just don't have any appetite for taking a step out there and being contrarian. And, you know, if content is king and you have to create uh, published content to drive leads, if you don't have anything interesting to say, you might as well say nothing, right? So the old adage, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. It really rings true in this case. Uh, we see it time and time again. A vanilla story is going to produce vanilla results. If you want to drive incredible results for your company, you need to step out there. You, you need to be a little contrarian. You need to have a position and you need to weave it into your brand. So what Eric and I are going to talk to you today is how do you take a position? How do you ride it until you die and leverage it in your content marketing? How do you find that place in the market? How do you convert that position into emotional, compelling and disruptive stories? And why does this help your marketing? How does this drive sales results? And then what tactics can you use to activate that thought leadership so it generates results? So, Eric, this is a huge topic. It's one that I know we talk to clients about almost daily, and you talk to prospects about them a few times a day. Get us started with your position on how do we get out there? How do we get over the hump that we're feeling a little nervous to say something that no one else is saying? And how do we really breathe that into our story so that the company can thrive? Okay, so what's marketing? Marketing is telling a story for the most part to the right people to engage them in some activity you want them to do. We agree that that's as simple as it comes, right? But the key thing there is storytelling. How many times have you been to a party and there was someone at the party you started speaking with and they were boring and you were like, oh, please, oh, please get me out of here. Where's the bar? I wish my wife would come over and distract me. It's just a boring story. But then after you've shook, uh, shaken off that person, you meet another person and they have interesting stories. They're uh, uh, exuberant. They are uh, telling you some interesting data that gets you thinking. And you just don't want to leave that person at the party. You're engaged. It's the same thing with marketing. You're right. A lot of people are fearful about having some kind of story that is different than the competition. And I don't understand why. Because back to the party analogy, I want to be the person at the party that's the most interesting, that people want to speak with, that people want to go bowling with me on Wednesday night after the party, because it's an interesting experience. Now, I don't know psychologically what the reason is for that, but 95% of people that we speak with are downright petrified to take a stance on something. Now, that stance doesn't have to be 
something as big as, you know, world topics. It could just be something within your industry. We have been on a tear at Square Two Marketing with a movement or revolution, hashtag kill the retainer. Because we feel that the retainer model that 99% of agencies use isn't in the best interest of the clients. It doesn't get results fast enough. It works off a marketing plan that's 12 months old that's obsolete after the first month. We just don't believe in it. So we wholeheartedly would be more than happy to debate, to promote this contrarian stance. And because of that, we get more than our fair share of opportunities because people want to hear why. Let's talk to these folks. There must be something there if they're so passionate about it. And I think that that's uh, the behavior you want in your sales and marketing team to say, how can we stand above? How can we stand apart? How can we move some people emotionally to understand why we're taking this stance and why we have a bigger story? Now, to conclude, Mike, because this is supposed to be a conversation and not a presentation, I, I want to go back to that story of Arbil, which is a very unsexy client we had that sells safety products. But instead of saying, take 10% off your hard hats today only, like all the other guys, they took a stand. We're going to help your people get home safely each night. That's our mission. And honestly, Mike, I don't know, you know what the current numbers are, but when they graduated from our program, they were three times the revenue they were when we first met them. Because people were like emotionally connecting to that story. Of course, I want you to help my people get home safely. I don't care if the hard hats are an extra 50 cents each way. And that's where even a pedestrian business like Arbil can really take a stand and breathe that message into their marketing. Yeah, that's that's such good advice. So I mean, I can fill in a little bit of the blanks on the human side of things. I'm a bit of a student of the human condition. People don't want to stand out, right? I, I think I've told the story. Marketing's job is to help a company stand out. It's literally everyone else's just human nature to push back on that, right? If, if we were going to a party and Eric said to me, I'd really like to make an impression at this party. I would say to him, yo, dude, you should wear a clown outfit, right? Now, he would totally stand out, right? Everyone would be pointing and laughing and wanting to know what's up with the clown outfit. And he would be incredibly uncomfortable in the clown suit for the entire party, right? And that, I think, illustrates how people generally feel when you force them to step out of their comfort zone a little bit. But marketing's job is to get the company to be noticed. And I know you don't want to be noticed for the wrong thing, like wearing a clown suit, but I could easily have said to him, wear a purple blazer, and he would stand out, and he would be a lot more comfortable than, than the clown suit. So there's varying degrees of how you can go about standing out. The story we told a couple of uh, episodes ago uh, around Seth Godin's purple cow is another example. Now, the, the purple cow story skips over the human condition because you're talking about an you know an animal that doesn't have feelings so like the the cow is not nervous to be purple when all the other cows are brown but it's the same thing you got to get you and your team beyond the fact that you're going to feel uncomfortable because the company is saying something that no one else is saying now eric's comment about our kill the retainer position is just one of a long string of of positions that we've tried to take when we first started taking the company uh when we first started started the company our position was kind of like uh advertising sucks like we were very inbound and and down on outbound at, at a at a point where inbound is not even a thing yet like honestly we were telling people to stop doing advertising and consider earning attention we then learned it was called inbound even in the beginning of inbound that was a fit that was like our next move to that hardly anybody knew what it was and to say like don't do advertising and earn attention you know that was a big contrarian position too then inbound became very common like sliced bread and we've had to adapt again and that is a journey that your company may have to go through what you use to position your company differently today might not be what you have to say in a couple of years from now you have to be able to migrate that positioning over time but you you have to get your team over those feelings of being uncomfortable, right? Then what you have to do is start looking at the place in which you can carve out as your own. And, you know, and we have a lot of examples of, of how we've helped clients try to do this. Um, maybe Eric, while I'm talking, you could think of a couple others besides our bill. But you know, when you look at what your competitors are saying, 
you'll notice that they are saying very similar things. We actually show uh, prospects their other competitors. We basically say like, look, your website looks exactly like theirs. So it's a common issue in a lot of industries. But if you understand what problems your prospects have, it is relatively easy to find that space and carve it out and, and, and create a um, contrarian position for your business in your industry that will get you some attention. Well, you asked me for stories and you know I have a million of them, Mike. So I'll give you a conversation that even you don't uh, know I had because I just had it recently with a buddy of mine. I've been in the entrepreneurs organization for about 19 years now and I have many good friends who are entrepreneurs and one of them asked for my marketing advice. He's starting a business where it's prepared foods that you would uh, pick up, uh, sorry, a prepared food kit that you would pick up at a independent supermarket. So not the national change, but the, the, the local supermarkets that have a, just a couple of locations. And when, you, uh, when he was pitching the um, independent grocers, it was the, the, the value proposition was, look, all these things are in your store already. The chicken, the vegetables, the spices, we're just repackaging it in a, in a way that you can sell more of those. That was the first level, but lots of people could say that. Then he said, well, wait a minute. Um, you know, we're kind of helping people make meals again, right? So he said, where do you think I should go with that? So we said, well, is your mission to bring back the family dinner? So now he has a strong message, right? Don't eat at McDonald's. Don't grab some food, you know, come back, get one of these kits, bring back the family dinner. So that was one of his messages that was a little bit uh, aggressive. But then he said to me, is that aggressive enough? And I said, no, I don't think it is because you're not going to disrupt anything. The family meal is nice and I'd love to eat with my family every night, but that's not really what's going to drive it. By taking him through the exercise, because remember, it's not really the end user he has to sell. He has to sell these supermarkets to, to stock a case of these things. I said, you know what? Here's the pain. Everybody who owns a supermarket is losing business to HelloFresh, Blue Apron. What are the other ones called, Mike? Yes, uh, Sunbox. There's a million right. of them, right? All of those prepare meals, right? So I said his go-to-market strategy should be, I hate HelloFresh, right? Now, of course, he was immediately nervous. We can't say that. And I said, well, why not? If I'm a rush, if I'm a owner of a supermarket, I do hate HelloFresh. They are literally stealing business of my local people and uh, jumping over me via UPS to deliver food to this family. Why don't I hate them? Now, to your point about how aggressive you should be and where you find your place, he was a lot more happier with bring back the family meal. And that's fine. He was disrupting. He was going contrarian against people that are like going to eat fast casual every night. But it could have been a lot more um, uh, aggressive and buzzworthy if he would have had the hashtag. Mike, tell the story about I Hate Steven Singer. Yeah, yeah. Steven Singer is a local jeweler in the Philadelphia area. And for years now, his whole entire marketing uh, effort has been geared around the fact that people hate him because he's making their spouses, partners, uh, jealous because you went there and got something better than you got at all the other jewelry stores. So it's really a, a quite a sustainable campaign. I imagine it's working for him because he's literally been doing it for, I think, maybe 10 years now. It seemed like forever. I hate Steven Singer, but I, I couldn't agree more. I think that I hate HelloFresh. The, the timing for that is perfect. You know, I really like those meal kits. We get them pretty, not every week, but a lot of weeks at home at my house. And I got to be honest with you, lately, I've been really kind of bored of them. I feel like they keep recycling the same recipes. And I know the, the ingredients are similar because they order so much of the broccoli. Every meal has to have broccoli in it. Like I totally get it from their perspective, how, how it comes out like that. But I, I could use a break, like what you're uh, suggesting. So the well, I know you're Hello a big Fresh fan. Is, is, is going to be so much better than the bring the meal, bring well, the family meal home. But I know you're a big fan of George's. What is it called? George's yes, local George's, market. George's Family Market. Yeah. George's Family Market. And if you could go there and pick out something new and literally take it home in 10 minutes, because remember, George's is an independent grocer, right? Right. It would be in the case. All of it is guaranteed fresh because they people prepared it to be in the back, just like at the yeah. deli counter or the seafood counter. And it's just another option. But you know what would wake you as a perfect uh, target for my friend Neil? Yeah. Be like, what? What's this all about? I hate HelloFresh. What's that all about? Right. And that's where we would obviously make the connection. Yeah. And, and look, I'm describing 
as a HelloFresh customer, I'm describing my issues with the service, right? There's, there's room there for him to wedge his business in and drive a significant amount of interest, right? Like you, you look at these boxed meal services just to stick with this theme. Like you think like, oh, they figured it out. Like they got, but they don't. There's room there for another product if they have the right message. It's a shame he's not, like we said, it would be great if he was a little more comfortable taking an even more aggressive stance to position his business against those services directly. Yeah, but at least he had a movement that he was driving, right? Bring back the family meal. Hey, what's that all about? Well, people just don't eat together, blah, blah, blah. Just saying these are our prepared food kits that you can find in a supermarket is what everybody does, right? Here's the technical aspects. Here's the details of it. Buy it if you want not. But I could get behind bring back the family meal, right? That's something that is of interest to me. If I have little kids, hey, let's prepare dinner on Tuesdays from now on. We'll get them at our local market. I mean, that's something that's at least at least better than a, a, a pedestrian description of the actual company's products it, and services. It is. It is. But I love the spectrum, right? Because he's going to do better. You know, he's going to do be- <coughs> he's going to do better with I hate HelloFresh. But he settled into that middle story because he's more comfortable. It's not going to be as compelling, certainly better than your your third choice, which is, you know, fresh ingredients at your local grocer. Um, But it's really a great illustration of how and maybe we can talk a little bit about edge crafting, because I feel like this is a very relevant uh, exercise in terms of how to find your positioning. Uh, You know, the further out you go without going over the edge. You know, he didn't he didn't say I, I hate food. Right. Like which who would believe that he's just, or, or uh, F hello fresh. Uh, right. Also a good example. Right. Um, you got to push your story. Right. You got to push your message as far as you possibly can without going over the edge. And this is a really good illustration for our listeners. And you really could do this with almost every business. Once you dig into the issues that your your prospects are having it opens up the opportunity to find that space and create this dif- differentiated story. Now, just to stick with this, because it's such a good example, everybody knows these, these boxed meal services. Uh, how, do you, uh, how would you suggest he would take, let, let's go and say he's, he's going with the I hate HelloFresh, right? How would that convert into content and thought leadership for the business to drive additional interest and get engagement from a marketing perspective? Well, there's two sides to the coin. You want to work on the supermarket side, a supermarket owner target, or do you want to work on the I prepare food at home target? Well, you you technically have to, I would think you would have to work on both, right? Yes, you have to get the groceries stores to buy his stuff in bulk, but you still have to have people come in and know that it's there and want to buy it and but the, but the pains and problems of the two groups are different. I'm losing revenue and margin to HelloFresh is different than my HelloFresh is stale and I'm looking for new and exciting meals that are fresher in my, and I could go pick up and not wait for UPS to deliver. So there's a little bit of nuance there between the two. Let's just use the supermarket owners, right? Because that's a one-to-many approach as opposed to one-to-one for the families. Well, there, there's a lot of content. Uh, do an infographic showing how... Um, the typical supermarket is losing X amount with and with before and after HelloFresh was introduced. Uh, do a uh, comparison ebook on the length of time from the field to your table using HelloFresh and using uh, Mamos, which is the name of this one, right? Um, you can have interviews of restaurant owners, uh, sorry, of supermarket owners that are saying things like, these things are flying off the shelf. People are really uh, excited that they can have a fresh meal that they can grab and it's not the same off a menu that takes six days to ship to you, right? So there's a lot of different opportunities to poke at the emotion of the supermarket owner to get them to say, well, you know what, let me give these guys a try. Now, on the homeowner, you're the perfect example, Mike. You want variety, you want freshness, you want diversity, you want um, uh, a little bit of, what's the right word, Um, uh, uh, Spice, meaning that, oh, I I didn't know that they had an Indian option, right? Oh, let me try. And he has uh, just as many options as a low fresh. It's just made in the back of the supermarket using the ingredients from the supermarket as opposed to the low fresh model, right? So there's so many different things that he could plug into when it's, I hate hello fresh. The homeowner says, yeah, yeah, during the uh, pandemic, I leaned a little too heavy into those box meals. I'm kind of tired of them now. I need something new. But I still like the act of preparing and eating my own meal, right? So that's where the content around that could be so diverse 
once again. Now, the edge crafty exercise you mentioned is very specific. Who's the perfect client? What pains and problems do they have? How does your company solve those pains and problems? And where the rubber meets the road is, how can I solve those problems in a remarkable way? And if you could go through those four steps, you can develop a very, very straightforward message that would always tie back to the pains and problems of the prospect. Yeah, that's correct. And then you would have to then challenge you, your, you and your organization to come up with a story that encapsulates all of that and is so interesting that it would get someone's attention without being, you know, to, to your point, um, abrasive or insulting or, or, or some, something that takes it a little, a little too, too, too far, right? That, exactly. that exercise does take some time and some practice. You know, in, in a lot of companies' cases, it might be good to have someone that has done that before help you walk you through that exercise and bring some kind of workshop pro programmatics to that so that you're not kind of like sitting in a conference room with your leadership team, like just flailing, trying to come up with something that's a little, you know, edgy. But yeah. that, that edgy, is the process for sure. without considering the target market is not appropriate, right? Correct. It has to tie back to the pains and problems. Um, I remember we had that client who did all those uh, business machine repairs, right? And we asked them, what's the number one pain of your prospects? They're like, well, when their massive laser printer goes down, it's how fast can I get someone to fix it? So we started to talk about speed. And they had, if memory serves me, 16 crews out on the street, each with their own van that has the parts for all these machines. So we said, look, you got 16 vans, go lease a 17th van. And let's call that the rapid response vehicle. And let's put a headline on the website, fix your business machine in 59 minutes or less. Now there were some caveats. They had to be a half an hour away or 30 miles away and right and had to be in business hours. And that rush service came with a premium. But we were now able to blow the competition away by say, fix your business machine in 59 minutes or less. The content was, we have the response, uh, rapid response vehicle, uh, idling in the driveway, video, cut to the shot of the smoke coming out of the, the, the exhaust pipe. The guys get the call, they jump in, screech, they're on their way and they fix the machine. Now, that really made our client uncomfortable. But to their credit, they gave it a try. And what was happening was everybody was responding to the 59 minutes when they heard it was a $300 upcharge. They were like, okay, fine, but can your guy get out, regular guy get out here in the morning? And they were writing service tickets like crazy. But the thought of breaking the mold where it was like, we'll get to you sometime this week versus we can get there in 59 minutes if you want it, blew the whole market open. Yeah, this actually happened to us. Do you remember the uh, plumbing and heating company we were working with? This was many years ago. And they, they explained to us how there's a four hour window for appointments. And we said to them, like, why is there a four hour window? Why can't you just come when you say you're going to come and manage it on your end? Oh, that would be impossible. We could never do that today. You know, Horizon is a big I think they're a national brand now. But anyway, lo locally, they'll come whenever you want them to come. There's no more window. You make an appointment, they show up. And in some cases, they have that rapid response service you're describing. And there is no charge because they are setting the market, right? They want to get people who, who don't want to wait all morning for their plumbing or HVAC people to come. They moved the bar to a point where no one else had it and forced everyone else to try to catch up. And that's really part of this exercise is to... Get out there in advance of your comp competition, stake your ground in a remarkable way, and then continually move that, that mark ahead, 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 always trying to stay ahead of your competitors. It's, 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 it's the secret to generating leads and, and, and hockey stick growth. And I'm writing an article about this now. If you think marketing tactics like your website and email marketing and social and whatever if you think those are going to generate hockey stick growth and it doesn't matter what you're saying you're mistaken you're not going to see revenue growth and you know what's wrong with revenue if you don't have a compelling story that is disruptive you're, you're just not going to see it you're going to be spending money on tactics that will produce modest results if you don't have a great story and you're not differentiated from your competition it's not going to be the results i think you're expecting Mike, let's talk price. Horizon, the cheapest guys in town? No, they're not. Are they okay if they lose a deal for money? It seems like it. 
Absolutely. They know right. who they are in the marketplace. All of the thing, you know, look, this show is called What's Wrong with Revenue? It's okay to charge the premium price if you're going to give the premium service. It's okay to say no to be the lowest cost provider in your space. And that's one of the things that we talk about with differentiation, right? The whole challenge of being remarkable is to get that premium price. Now I could do three jobs a day instead of four and make the same amount of money because I'm charging appropriately and people are happy to pay for that. You know, if you think about the plumbing example, how much would you pay to eliminate the one foot of water that's in your basement right now? Any amount of money. You're not like, well, how much are you going to charge me? Let me call six guys. You have a foot of water in your basement. Get rid of it. Solve the problem. Let's go. And if someone wants to wait two weeks to have the cheapest guy chuck in a truck, come to their house and, and deal with it, then no problem. That's just not for uh, Horizon. Yeah, agreed. All right. That was a really good kind of conversation around this. I hope everyone kind of gets the point there. Um, let's answer some questions because there's a decent amount of questions this week. So this is from Barry in San Diego. Who in the company should take ownership of thought leadership? And can it be more than one person? So how do you feel about that? Well, I think those could actually be unpacked into two things. Leadership, whether that's the C-suite as a group or the uh, CEO or president, has got to take the reins of what the big message is going to be. Marketing cannot drive that because it can't be on an island where marketing is saying something and operations and finance and all those people are just like uh, uh, traveling, uh, tagging along. It's got to be a coordinated effort. So when it comes to what's the big story, how are we going to differentiate yourself, leadership must be involved so that they can make sure that the effort is orchestrated amongst all the parts of the business. However, when it comes to thought leadership content development, that could definitely be a group effort inside an organization. Because if everybody understands the big story, right? If you took a salesperson off the floor at Steven Singer, and you said, write me a blog post about why people are jealous of uh, when their significant others get their jewelry at Steven Singer. They could go on and on. They could write right now on the back of a napkin, nine reasons why, right? So they can participate, but only if they're engaged in the big story. If they're siloed, they're not able to participate in that content development. And that's why I think it's important to make sure that the big story is established and then cascades down to everybody in the organization making sure that there's buy-in because if the salespeople aren't promoting the remarkable, then the story's not reaching prospects. If the marketing team isn't putting up big headlines on the website, then it's not reaching people that are surfing the internet. And there's a whole bunch of breakdowns that can occur. Yeah, I agree. And there's a few kind of issues woven in there. The first is how many of you CEOs have been on sales calls and you don't even recognize your own company? The salespeople are just not talking about the company the way you would be talking about it. That's what Eric's describing. There's a breakdown from, from the C-level or from the CEO into the rest of the company. That has to be fixed. Everyone has to be telling the story the same exact way, and they have to be comfortable with it, whether they like it or not. It, telling the story is not optional. You can't you know, show up at a meeting and tell what you feel like telling when the company is telling you to, to, to talk about it like this. That all has to be resolved. So to some extent, it's it's everybody's responsibility to own the big story, right? It is leadership's responsibility to define it and then get it out to everybody, but everybody has to embrace it and, and deal with it. In, in terms of the people, um, Eric's right. It can be distributed across the company. And in fact, probably should be. And this is an interesting takeaway around this conversation. Most of the prospects you'll, you'll will be talking to probably aren't that interested in your company's line around the particular story. So, and I'm specifically think, thinking about social media. Very few people follow companies on social. They follow people. So the people have to be able to bring this story and, and give this story life and tell the story over and over again. In fact, everyone in your company should probably be using their social platforms to help tell your story. Now, not everyone will want to do that, but that's going to be much more effective than, than focusing all your energy on your company LinkedIn profile. Because the people that are checking that out, to them, it's like your website. Like They don't believe it. It's, it's propaganda. It's marketing. And, and they're, they're right when you break it all down. But if I'm saying something, it's different than square two is saying it. If Eric's saying it, it's different than when square two says it. And that applies to all your companies also. So every certainly the C-level people, but probably a lot of people in your company should be promoting their personal brands and leveraging your story and your content into their personal brands. 
that's a very low cost way to better leverage social and any kind of paid advertising campaign that you might be considering. And while that might, there might be a lot of challenges tucked into what I just said, it's going to be much more effective than trying to cram your, your way down their throats with paid advertising. Okay, can you give us a few examples of what it looks like to take a position? So we have, this is from uh, Donna in New York City. We have talked about some examples. Do, do you have any others, Eric, uh, top of mind that, that we might be able to illustrate what taking a position would look like? Well, let me start by saying I used earlier in our conversation the words movement and revolution. Now, I'm not talking about overthrowing a country, right? I'm talking about changing the status quo in a specific industry. So I could give you lots of examples where we urged clients to break out of the uh, gaggle of geese that are the co competitive pool and stand alone. So how we typically will entice them is not by saying you should really be contrarian. No, what's the big movement or revolution that you can lead, okay? so. When it came to our bill again, it was getting everybody home safely. We're leading a revolution to enhance safety at manufacturing facilities to get people home safely. While that's very narrow, it is a revolution. It's changing the fact that, oh no, typically we ship uh, safety products and you do what you want with them. But by giving content and showing videos and how people can get hurt and how you can prevent it, they were triggering that movement of getting people home. So uh, getting people home safely. So I want to make sure that you understand, like when you put it in terms of movement and revolution, it's a little bit different than we're just saying something to be inflammatory in our industry. Does that make sense, Mike? It does. Uh, I'm going to give you guys a little uh, uh, exercise here that I think might help. Easter egg. If, if you think about, uh, if you were going to author a book about your business or about your industry, one of the things you would do is try to come up with a really engaging title, right? Eric and I wrote a couple of books and we, when we were working on our titles, we used to say, if, and I think maybe someone taught us this, I don't feel like this was us, but if your book was in one of the airport bookstores and you were going by on your way to get a flight, um, would the title grab your attention, right? Someone told us that, we didn't make that up, did we? It was, uh, it was true. Not, his name's not Joe. True. <laughs> but I know who you mean, right? Right. Yeah. Cap, cap, cap yeah. guy. Yeah. Right. Um, right. So think about if you're going to author a book, right? So Eric and I wrote a couple books. The, the, the best title by far for, for me was Fire Your Sales Team Today, right? This was a book about why the traditional salesperson is no longer relevant when people don't want to be sold to, right? So we were not suggesting you fire your salespeople, but we were suggesting you fire them from their old jobs and then hire them back in their new sales guide jobs, right? What a great title, right? It's disruptive. I actually had a CEO of a pretty big company tell me he couldn't write the forward because he thought his salespeople were going to get upset right? That's what we were looking for. We wanted to disrupt people. We wanted to get them to think differently about their sales team. So while that never really turned into a headline for our website, it's a really great exercise to consider when you're trying to figure out what your positioning would be. If you had to write a book about your company's story, what would the title be, right? Our last book, Smash the Funnel, maybe not as dramatic as Fire Your Sales Team today, but still, you know, it, uh, disruptive. The funnel Everyone knows about the funnel. Everyone leans on the funnel. Everyone thinks the funnel is end all and be all. And we're here to tell you it's a really old model that doesn't work anymore. In fact, you might not know this, but it's sold. It was created in like 1890 something. It's literally that old. And people still think it's the shit today, right? So um, those are some really good ways to think about your positioning and, and come up with some headlines and some positioning and some the beginnings of a story that might start getting you to go down that path. Yes, it's uncomfortable to say fire your sales team today, but it's exactly the story we were gonna tell in that book. Awesome, okay, thank you. Um, hmm, a few examples, how do you take care of it? We kind of talked about that. Uh, we talked about this question is from Laura in um, Lansing, Michigan. Why do you think this is so hard for companies to get behind? I mean, we did talk about that a little bit. Might be worth talking a little bit more you, about. You already said it. It's uncomfortable to wear a tuxedo to a casual party, right? It's right. different than everybody else. 
But meanwhile, if I showed up in a dinner jacket at a uh, uh, you know casual backyard party, people would talk about it for years. You remember that guy, that guy that was wearing a tuxedo, right, Mike? Right. I mean, that's how uncomfortable it is for people to be different. And I think it really um, uh, trickles down to the marketing exercise. Well, our competition doesn't say that. That seems a little bit contrary. Now, I'm very uncomfortable with that. And that, of course, is the safe play, but it's not the smart play. The smart play is to be on the outside, right? Um, why do you think they have the black sheep of the family? They behave differently than all the white sheep in the family. I want people to be the black sheep when it comes to marketing, right? Something a little bad boy, something a little different, something a little bit aggressive. And I don't think people feel comfortable being that. Now, you can apply data to that, right? So let's say that we have a crazy aggressive headline and you put it up on the website and you compare it to your boring pedestrian website that it was there previously, right? Look at the data. When people are sharing, when people are spending more time, when people, the bounce rate goes way down because people are curious, like what's going on with this company, the data should uphold it. Now, I'm not saying that everybody's going to agree with the data either because it's still uncomfortable, right? If I told you that 89% of women would be more attracted to me at the party if I was wearing a tuxedo, all right, it's good data, but I still might be uncomfortable to wear a tuxedo to a backyard barbecue, right? So, you know, that's one data point that if you try it or you tested it and the data came back, maybe that would be a small step forward and feeling better about being different. There's also the conversation about bouncing it off of key clients. If you have a client advisory board or some kind of user group, bounce this idea off of them, see what their reaction is. If they're like, whoa, well, then maybe it's worth a try. If they're like, that does not resonate with me, maybe you go back to the drawing board. So there's lots of ways that you can test it before you, you know, wear the tuxedo in front of your wife before you get to the party, see what the reaction is, and then you can move forward if the uh, if, if the uh, response is in the affirmative. Mm -hmm. Just be prepared to do it anyway when she says you look silly. Uh, well, that's my choice, how aggressive I want to be, how remarkable right. I want to be at the party, right? right? If it's all of her uh, work friends, I might back off a little bit. But if it's my college buddies, I might feel a little more comfortable. Right. That brings us to a question that talks about measurement. So I'll elaborate a little bit on what you said. So this is a question from uh, Pete in California. How do you measure the effectiveness of new positioning we might be taking? And I think you, you touched on it. There's so many good ways to measure this, right? You literally could do two website homepages. You could do the conservative approach and you could do the contrarian approach. And you literally could publish those simultaneously on an A-B testing platform and randomly show the homepages to different people over the course of a period of time, get enough data for everyone to be comfortable that it's, you know, uh, robust enough to, to, you know, if you had three people look at it, it might not be good, but maybe 300 is enough or 3000, whatever someone agrees and, and agree that the page that performs the best is the page that we're going to go with. I can guarantee you right here, an annual salary that they will, the, the, the contrarian page will outperform the vanilla page. There's no question about it. Assuming everything else is consistent, you know, the headline is written in an emotional way and there's a good offer and the, the page is designed well. Like, so keep well, all think, of those elements the same. Point, if it's done smartly, if it's right. done, you know, thoughtfully, not just to be, uh, uh, right. uh, uh, what's the right word? Yeah, to make a splash. Right. Um, that right there would be an incredible set of data that you could literally sit down with the leadership team and say, look, I know we all have our opinions. I know we're all uncomfortable, but look, this page with this story got twice as many hits and had a half the bounce rate as this conservative looking page is very similar to what we have now. That's an incredible way to, to measure the effectiveness of a story like this. Um, you, you, I mean, depending on how aggressive you want to be, you could take it to a trade show. You could uh, bring your new story to a trade show. Uh, and and you, you know what the trade show did last year with your old story. And you know what the trade show does this year with your new story and see what kind of feedback you get from people. I mean, these are live people who are stopping by. You can talk to them about it. Hey, how do you feel about this? Well, I'm a little taken aback, but I like it. Or, oh, I don't know. It seems a little too aggressive for me and my company. Or, you know, if you get a lot of negative feedback, you learn something, put it, put it in the back pocket and, and move on. So there's, there's lots of ways to test positioning like this some of it is you know maybe a little riskier like the trade show idea uh, others like the website idea or eric's comment about talking to people about it relatively low risk you could you could turn the a b test off on that website in an afternoon 
and and go back to the vanilla page if 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 it's not outperforming that. But again, I stake my professional career on the uh, contrarian page outperforming any vanilla page any time of day or night. Me too. Okay, so um, here's an interesting question. This is from Karen in uh, Burlington, Vermont. How worried about competitors should we be? What if they copy us or counter our position? So I have heard this before from people like, you know, what are our, you know, what if our competitors start saying things about us? You know, what are people going to think about us? Like, give us a little perspective on how worried we should be about how the competitors respond to this. Don't worry. That's my advice. Number one. Being remarkable, as we've been talking about today, is um, tough. We just spent uh, 44 minutes talking about how people are uncomfortable with a uh, more aggressive story. So one, they're not going to copy you word for word. But should they copy you? No problem. Every quarter, your team is developing something new and remarkable that you can bring to market, something that will push the limit, something that will make people talk. Being remarkable is hard. We talked about how the CEO has to really make sure that the effort to uh, offer this remarkable service or product is orchestrated. The sales team has to be on board. The marketing team has to be on. Operations has to be able to deliver. Being remarkable or differentiated is hard work. So they might copy you on one of them, but if you're constantly, let's say four times a year, every 90 days, rolling out something new and different, now they're just going to give up because you know it's work. So I would not worry about that even for a moment. Now, should someone blatantly steal, maybe you trademark your new uh, movement or revolution, right? So that at least you've planted a stake that this belongs to my company and my company only. But honestly, we've been doing this for almost 19 years now and very few people will be copying you. And I'll give you a, a personal example. We, as we've talked about on the show at Square Two, this is not meant to be promotional, we have the accelerator program, six months worth of work in 30 days. You would think that after having that program in place for three years, other agencies would copy us and have something similar. But we rarely hear that. We're like, wow, you guys are really unique because you know why? It's hard work to deliver six months worth of work in 30 days, but we figured it out. We took the time to figure it out. We took the time to promote it. And now we reap the benefits at our firm. So I wouldn't worry about that a minute. I spend 99% of my time worrying about how I can lead a revolution, not how the competition is going to copy me should I succeed. Yeah, I, I'd agree. I mean, we we talk to, we work with a lot of software companies. We have this conversation with them pretty frequently. There's this uh, idea called uh, sustainable competitive advantage. So a lot of software companies like to lean into their features. Oh, we have a brand new feature. Like we're going to like really leverage this in our marketing campaign. Okay, that's fine. But it's really just a matter of, in some cases, weeks before the competitor comes out with a similar feature and you have to start all over again. There are so many other places that software companies can potentially lean into being competitively different than the features in the product. So um, software features are not a sustainable competitive differentiator. You need to look at some bigger company things like we can implement well, we actually have a client that, that says they can implement it in a day. Right. Uh, uh, you know implementation in a day for enterprise level software is is remarkable right you don't typically get that right even a SaaS based product it could take a month to get it fully implemented and configured properly if they can do it in a day wow good for them that that's a really compelling story when you need it fully implemented in order to get value out of it the faster you can get it installed and people using it the more value it's going to bring to your organization a day is better than 30 days by a lot um, so th that's a much better example of a competitive sustainable advantage, because again, the other companies, they, they, they would have to blow up their implementation process completely to go from a month to a day. If that's something that they're interested in doing it, like, similar to us, they may never, uh, be able to do that or, or find out that it's even important enough to spend to doing it or want to put forth right. the effort. Right, right. So uh, there, there's, a, there's a lot in that. I, I agree, like you can't worry about the competitors. I had a, a client the other day. Well, what if our competitors get our, our content? I said to them, just, just agree right now that they're gonna get it, right? Like anything you put on the internet, your story, the con anything you publish publicly, they're getting, right? So you can't manage your marketing around thinking they might get it. You can't not do something because they might get it. You have to just accept the fact that they have, it, 
right? Just like you have all their stuff. Like you, you just can't let that be an impediment to doing anything from, from a marketing perspective. Just, just keep going forward. Don't, don't worry about what they're doing. You'll be much better than trying to figure everything out that they might be up to. So uh, you, you can't worry about whether they copy you. You can't worry about whether they counter your positioning. Just focus on what you do. Keep making it better, like Eric said. Keep taking a stronger position um, and, and keep m- trying to keep that competitive, sustainable advantage ahead of all your competition. Okay. Um, I got one more question here and then we'll wrap up for the day. Um, Eric, how long do you run with a position before you consider having it to be uh, ready? Uh, let me just read the question verbatim here. How long do you run with a position before you consider having to or being ready to change that position? So it's a legitimate question. Like how frequently should we be prepared to have to make an adjustment to this difficult story we've been talking about for you know an hour here? Yeah. So I think it's a lot about environment. Okay. The environment shifts. There's no doubt about it. And you got to shift with it. Right. Um, Remember how uh, we used to have a million clients that we supported in their trade show efforts. Then a global pandemic happened and there were no trade show efforts. We shifted. Now clients are like, Hey, our trade shows are back on. Can you help us with that? So we're shifting, right? If you had a message of we are a trade show specific marketing company, we would have had to pivot and we would have had to go in a different direction. So I think it's environmental, like what's going on around you. So number one, you got to be able to shift if the market shifts. Number two is there's a metrics conversation. If I have been putting out, I hate Steven Singer and I'm their ad agency and I have data on that and I see that, well, we've been running this for three years and everybody ignores it now. We get no traction to our website. Nobody's using the hashtag we created time for a new campaign. But if the metrics are strong, like I assume they are with I hate Steven Singer because they're always making new engaged couples, right? So that continues to feed them. Then the metrics should hold up and they continue going on. So that's the, the second one. But the third one, I think, is that you can have an overarching message that's remarkable, differentiated, perhaps a little aggressive, but then underneath of it, you can support it with different kinds of activities, right? So let's say, using our example, that um, if it was get results quickly was the overarching message and the accelerator was our support of that message, let's say all the agencies that we compete with did copy it. Well, we would have a challenge on our hands and we'd have to pivot. So that's something to consider too, that it still could be get the results as quickly as possible as the overarching, but maybe the way we support that might change and we have to be a little bit uh, flexible or pivot when necessary. So I think there's lots of uh, lenses you can view that. When is it time to change? But most of them are, are based on data, right? If we're still getting good results, let's keep running it. Let's drive it into the ground. If we're not, maybe it's time for something new. Um, always remember my dad, he loves to buy a brand new car and he likes to drive it until the wheels fall off. Okay, great. That's his point. But then other people like to get a new car every three years. So they're not hassled with repairs. That's their cutoff. So it's a little bit of like personal business strategy about which one you feel comfortable or what suits you. If you're still barking on um, uh, upgrade your dial up to internet, right? What do you, whatever you call regular internet, right? It might be past that time for that message. And now we're on to something else. So I'm just saying that you have to be aware and constantly, as we say at Square Two, reading the tea leaves. What is the feedback showing us and how do we make decisions off of that? Yeah, I think this is really a non-issue. I think it'll become very obvious to you when you've uh, run out of runway, so to speak, right? You'll start to hear things. Oh, uh, so-and-so said a similar thing. You know, I I heard so-and-so was saying a similar thing. Or, look, I visit some competitors' websites from time to time. You know, you'll start to notice that they're saying something similar to what you are. And in fact, it might be very likely that they copy you. What's the saying? You know, like uh, copying is the sincerest form of flattery or something like that. Like, you know, yeah, if they yeah. if they like your message, they, they might copy it, whether they can deliver it or not. So I think it will become very obvious to you when it's time to move on. You'll start to feel it, you know, from a marketing perspective, from sales perspective, you'll, you'll start to just get anecdotes around uh, the message may be, uh, may have run its course and you you need, you need something else. I, you know, to Eric's point, I wouldn't wait for that. I think it's a good practice to always be thinking about what your next story might be. How do you disrupt the market next? Uh, it doesn't mean you have to use it. So in our case, if, if our 
you know, uh, dedicated team engagement that delivers super fast work continues to be differentiating. Well, that's great. We don't have to worry about what we got in our back pocket, but it's good to have something in our back pocket in case next month, three agencies start saying the same thing, right? So you don't want to get caught without something else that you can go to. Um, but I think this, this, this will present itself to you. You'll know very clearly when it's time to move on. Yeah. Yeah. And also leadership should have a direct relationship with the sales team. What are you hearing from prospects? Are they still resonating? Like that could be a weekly meeting where you're like, are we red, green, or yellow on our message? And once it uh, turns to yellow, start thinking of something new. Yeah. Very good point. Awesome. Thank you. Like I, I, I can't emphasize enough. I, I mean, you know, we, we, we tried to give you a lot of practical examples, but this, I just can't emphasize how important this is and how under, uh, uh, under attended to it is with, with so many businesses, right? You just can't say the same thing as your competitors and think your market is going to pull you through. You really need an emotional, compelling, uh, interesting, remarkable story that helps position your business. So hopefully you have some good examples today in which you can go and work on uh, and, and, and breathe some new life into your marketing. Awesome. So can I, um, can I drop an Easter egg? You, you certainly can. All right. Easter eggs. We have to alert the audience to Easter eggs in the beginning. All right. <laughs> you can still go ahead. You can still go ahead. All right. Here's a, a free prize inside. If you've listened this far, 54 minutes in hit up Eric at square two marketing.com. I'll give you 30 minutes. I'll take your uh, ugly duckling and I'll turn it into a swan in theory, of course, in 30 minutes. And we'll help you kind of start that conversation about being remarkable. Awesome. That's very generous of you. Okay. So um, thanks everybody for listening. Next week, we're going to talk about how your tech stack might be a mess. So we've seen this so frequently over the past couple of years as companies are leaning into their technology a lot of them are, are, are screwing it up. They bought these products a year or two ago. They kind of stumbled their way through it. And now they're realizing it's a mess and they don't know how to clean it up. So a messy tech stack might also be contributing to what's wrong with revenue. We're going to talk about that next week. So thanks everybody for joining. Again, check out the show on YouTube. All of our What's Wrong With Revenue shows are posted at the Square Two Marketing channel on YouTube. Like them comment on them, subscribe to it, please, on YouTube. Check out our shows on our website at Square2 Plus, the new page on our website where we host all our audio and video content. You can get podcasts and shows like this there. We put something up every single week and you can subscribe to that service and get alerted when we post new content there. If you want to uh, uh, subscribe to this show specifically and you want to uh, give us some questions for upcoming episodes, you can go to the What's Wrong With Revenue link at the bottom of our website, square2marketing.com and subscribe and submit your questions there. We answer all the questions that are submitted like we did today. Thanks to everybody for listening. I really appreciate your time. Have a good rest of your day and we'll see you next Wednesday for What's Wrong With Revenue. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.